Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll focus on the changing face of work. What matters when it comes to perks and how good HR practices will help retain staff. Eric Mosley, the Irishman behind Unicorn Work Human, will talk about the phenomenal growth of their platform. Plus, the MD of Video as a Service will explain how corporate communication has changed. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Last week, I was in Boston as part of Ireland Gateway to Europe and I got to sit down with Eric Mosley, the CEO of WorkHuman. This is a HR platform, essentially, that enables peer-to-peer recognition in the workplace. They have a base here in Dublin and also a base in Boston and they have experienced an incredible trajectory over the last number of years, reaching unicorn status in 2020. That means they have a valuation of more than a billion dollars. As I said, I sat down with Eric and I asked him if the pandemic and the DC centralised way of working meant the services his company offer were needed more than ever before. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest casualty of the pandemic for the corporate world is is culture. Uh, you know, culture in companies has decayed over the last two years. Everyone just dispersed back to their basement and their, their, their spare bedrooms and were there for two years, which meant that they weren't involved or interacting with their colleagues anymore. So the relationships they had with their colleagues, the connection that they had to the community at work was kind of just withered away over all that time. And you see that now when people get back together. When they get back together, the sparks fly, you know, everybody's high-fiving and hugging. And it's because the humanity of the of work was kind of stripped away and it was just a little, you know, two-by-four-inch square on their computer screens over for two years. So for us, it's been actually, um, actually amazing for the business in terms of people have doubled down on social recognition to create goodwill with uh, employees and to try and build back up the relationships that they have with each other. And from that, you can kind of reconstruct your culture. But there's no doubt um, that it's been a tough two years for the HR world. We all have inherently inside of us, we have a core need to be seen, to be appreciated. If we work, we want somebody to recognise that. It's just part of the human condition. In the pandemic, what we found was that people again retreated to home office and didn't have that interaction. There was no natural time to say thank you anymore. The people with these social recognition programs, you know, obviously the ones that we provide, um, they had an institutionalized way to give that positive reinforcement to each other. And that helped bridge the gap. Um, But in general, companies, customers of ours, we have now 7 million people on our platform. um, And you know, record-breaking years over the last two years. But they're looking to just in kind of um, say thank you because people have been working under duress. You know, we've had, you know, big sections of the, everybody's workforce is working at the kitchen table maybe with, you know, pets and kids running around and, uh, and they just don't have the space. The amount of isolation that has happened in the last two years, the amount of mental health problems that have happened in a general workforce is off the charts. Mm -hmm. People outside of HR don't realize it. You know, they kind of have a sense for it, but it's real. You know, there's massive amounts of mental health issues and isolation, loneliness in the workplace. 
And a big part of that is they just haven't got human connection with their work colleagues anymore. They're, and they were stuck at home. Um, now that they're getting back, it starts to feel a little bit better. But then we have the challenge of, well, you know, we're never going back full time. You know, maybe it's a hybrid work environment. How do we bring that magic of interaction back to our work practices? It won't be the way it was before. And that's the big challenge that people are grappling with now. From an Irish point of view, we, we're a great like nation, but sometimes we can be a bit <laughs> cynical. I think that's a polite way of saying it. And the notion of, you know, giving thanks and acknowledgement to your colleagues a few years ago may have been looked as something that Oprah Winfrey would do, but that's <laughs> the height of it. Have you got a sense and has your customer base um, expanded in different parts of the world that have surprised you and has gone through the roof, I suppose, looking at the figures and the numbers that you've mentioned already? Mm. Well, historically with WorkHuman, we, you know, I moved over to the Boston area, to the American market uh, about 16 years ago. Um, We still have over half of our employees are in Dublin um, and the other half are in the U.S. And virtually 95% of all of our sales and marketing investment was in the U.S. because that's where our customer base was. And the sale of our kind of concepts and the vision for what this uh, adds to an, uh, an organization um, was just a lot easier to communicate over, over in the U.S. because they uh, knew what the science said and they accepted any sort of new ideas to try and build differentiation for their culture. But I have to say in the last like four years or so, there's definitely, definitely been a tipping point in Europe. And we're now investing significantly in sales and marketing in the UK and Ireland and Northern Europe. We've now won some pretty sizable global European companies as customers where uh, that kind of volume of success and business just wasn't there years ago. And I'm often asked, well, why are they suddenly interested now? Um, And a big part of it is the data science behind recognition is now you can now prove the effect that it has, and you can prove the, uh, the you know the, the the productivity enhancements, the retention enhancements, and they have a bottom you know a bottom line improvement financially. So once you can prove that, it's not a soft thing anymore. It's a very hard numbers return on investment, and so that's kind of opened the the, the floodgates uh, really in Europe. For those who are you know considering leaving their job but get an endorsement. I mean, how much of a recognition has to happen for people to stay? And do the, the, the companies need to follow through and ensure that it's not a every six months, everyone in the company gets a pat on the back. Yeah. It's actually a meaningful interaction and it's worth yeah. you staying because you are seen and you are valued. Well, it's a very complex kind of web of psychological impacts mm-hmm. that recognition has. And I think it's not that you'll have you give somebody a $100 award and suddenly they're going ch- to stay. That's, that's not what happens. What happens is if, they can be, if it can be demonstrated to them and they can experience continuous positive reinforcement when they do good work, if it's demonstrated that their colleagues value their contribution, uh, what happens is they build a community. They have a community ties with the people because the recognition comes from colleagues, from peers. It doesn't come from management. So most, you know, some of it does obviously, but not all of it. And so in that regard, the relationships between uh, the giver and the receiver of these kind of thank you moments um, have a deeper relationship. So people then become more moored to their 
office, to their, to their colleagues, to the community at work. And that's what they don't leave. It, you know, they feel more secure because people see the value that they provide and they also have a deeper relationship with their colleagues. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can just have the company give everybody a $100 thank you award and everything will be okay. It certainly won't. It'll be completely wasted if you do that. It has to be a continuous activity and if you can push it towards coming from colleagues, then you'll really, that, that you'll really uh, hit critical mass and you'll have much more retention and energy from the employee base. When I walked into where we are here in Boston today, I, I was listening to you um, being interviewed. And one thing that you mentioned really kind of stopped, I physically stopped walking across the floor because I had to listen to what you were saying. And it was in relation to how the platform identifies how, when there's bias, basically. Mm -hmm. it, you said something along the mm -hmm. lines of, you know, men or we all kind of thank women in a different way than we, mm -hmm. we thank men. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we have to... Uh, you know, the, the privilege of having 7 million people on our platform in 150 countries, we have 100 million moments of recognition in our database. So we can see at that level, you can start to see trends and patterns um, and insights. And so you can see that there is, unfortunately, discrimination against uh, certain groups. You can see that there is gender inequality. Um, you can see that women, for example, receive 12% less value in their awards than men do. You can also, which is even more surprising, if you just look at the women who give awards, they themselves give 12% less to women than they give to men. And the reason for that is that these biases are deep within us all. Even people who feel that they are above that, that they are educated into the issues of discrimination and equity, they do it as well. Um, it's just when they're on their own, given an award, writing a message, picking a value, they pick 12% less for some reason. And the reason is an internal deep bias that they themselves don't even know that they have. They also use language um, that is a little bit less committed than it would be if it was going to a man. So they might say uh, to a woman, thank you, uh, the team did a, a phenomenal job on that project. Whereas to a man, they'll say, thank you, Bill, you did a phenomenal, phenomenal job on that project. I wouldn't say it's a subtle difference, it's a pretty big difference. And when you put natural language processing on 100 million moments of recognition, and you see that between women and men, there is a, a, a discrepancy in the words that were used. Basically, the words in the women's awards are watered down. They're not as committed as they should be. And again, that is also exhibited when it comes from women. Now, it's not just a gender thing. It also is a race uh, issue. Um, you can you know, actually plot the equity of different races in those 7 million uh, employees which is harrowing in one way, but in another way, now you have a mechanism to measure it, you can name it and point to it, and you can then put things in place to help fix it. And so that's, that's you know, what we're trying to do. My final question is, you are one of Ireland's great success stories. You mentioned that you've got half your workforce in Dublin, uh, you have half your workforce here in the US. Are you still enjoying it? Are you still getting the same buzz that you had all those years <laughs> ago when you made the move over here? Yeah, I mean, fantastic. I moved over to the U.S. and, you know, myself and my wife said, look, we'll do three years in, in the U.S. And then every year we said we'll do three more years. And that's lasted for 16 years. And uh, so we still feel like we're just, you know, off the boat. <laughs> but, um, but look, it's been fantastic. We've had uh, the, the business 
has evolved and it changes radically every couple of years. And so it's n it never stands still. Every two years, it's like a reinvention of how important it is, what is emphasized, what the world needs, what the market needs. And so for us, um, it's constantly intellectually challenging and, and rewarding. And as long as that continues, you know, then we're, we're, we'll enjoy it. So we're, we're happy where we are now. That was Eric Mosley, CEO of WorkHuman, talking about the phenomenal growth their company has seen over the last number of months. And sticking with the issue of rewarding staff, I met with Amy Sperling, the CEO of Compt, at the Gateway to Europe Tech Breakfast. Compt is looking to shake up the way companies offer perks to their employees. Amy told me a little bit more about the business. We are an employee perk software platform that allows companies to offer employee perks in a very personalized way so that every employee can get something different, but that companies can do that at scale. So it's really working on that personalization piece for the employees. When we're talking about perks, and I know it depends in the scenario, but what are we talking about? Because, you know, I've been covering tech companies in Ireland for such a long time and perks used to be a free beer on a Friday or a foosball table in the hall. Right. There's definitely been a shift. So what, what are we talking about when we talk about it in this context? Sure. So that's where it started. It was like all these things. I mean, and you've got in Ireland, I mean, that's where Google went and LinkedIn went and HubSpot went and they built a lot of that um, or bringing that over. That has shifted where people realize, one, no matter what you bring in, maybe 5% of the team uses it, if, whether it's a keg or in the US student loan repayment or pet insurance, whatever it is. So very low utilization. And the goal now is to get to really high employee engagement. Now, in order to get a lot of people to use something, it has to apply to a lot of people. And there is no one thing. There's no a millennial perk, that's not a thing. There's no Gen Z perk, that's not a thing. Every single person needs and wants something different. So the goal is really to look at how do we get really high engagement? And you do that through personalization. All of our apps are personalized for us. So that can be, if a company wants to support wellness, one employee might want to use one mental health app. Another employee might want running shoes. A different employee might want a local yoga instructor. But it's letting employees determine what wellness means for them and to follow their own journey rather than a company dictating that, hey, this is for wellness. We're going to use this one mental health app. What if that doesn't work for you? Like you need to be able to have that flexibility as an employee. I know very often companies will try and offer perks as a nice gesture, right. but they don't have the time to go around going, Jess, what would you like? And right. Kieran, what would you like? Right. The, nobody has time for that. Nope. So where do you guys slot in and how do you sure. fix all that? So yeah, that, that process would never work. Mm -hmm. So to give you a sense, we looked at 8,700 of our users last year and followed them for 12 months and said 8,700 people, how many different unique vendors could they possibly use in a year? They use 27,000 different vendors. It is impossible for an HR director to possibly find three perk vendors for every single employee in their organization. So. The goal is to get away from, hey, we've got this collection of things and focus on what you're trying to drive. Are you trying to drive healthy behavior? Are you trying to be a very family-focused company? Are you a remote-first company and you want to support all the things that come with remote? But then letting the employee go and spend that money where they want, which typically goes back into local communities, which also supports people from kind of the ground up as well. We have been talking a lot on this program and right across the schedule on News Talk recently about the issue of staff retention. Mm -hmm. and keep keeping people happy although you know kudos matters and a pat on the back matters that can't be, it's not always enough for people no. and so perks does come into it, it does. 
But as you said there at the top, you know, a universal gym membership isn't going to work for everyone. Some people mightn't care. So is this something and have you found through your research that it does make an impact in terms of retaining that staff and also boosting morale? It does. We actually took a look at the companies that were with us right before the pandemic and looked at where they were from a growth standpoint um, after, uh, or, you know, we're still in it, but, you know, over the past couple of years. And on average, those companies grew 147%. So we cannot claim credit for all of that, of course. But what's happening in companies that focus on personalization for employees is that their demographics, their metrics look very different from what's happening overall in the market. They're able to retain people better and they're able to attract people better because you're focusing on how do I treat people like adults? How do I let them do the things that matter to them, but do it in a way that aligns with our culture? In terms of the personalization, when, when we hear that word, I suppose because a lot of tech platforms, big social platforms, for example, have been doing it without us being fully cognizant of it yes. for a long time. People's backs go up a little bit when they hear oh, personalization. 100%. How much of a compromise is there in terms of privacy, but also getting the personalized perks. I am very allergic to tech companies scraping lots of data. So we don't have a native mobile app, for instance. We're a mobile optimized website, so it will work on your phone, but we're not a native mobile app because I am not taking data off your phone that does not relate to things that you're doing. Literally, the the level of data we take from a company is as little as possible. As an employee, I don't need to know where you live. I don't need to know much of anything about you. I need your name and your email address, and you need to be able to get your stipend, and that's it. And so we do, you do you get reimbursed because you submit a receipt for whatever the thing is, but that's just stored in AWS. The company doesn't need to be looking at it, like all of that stuff. It's giving employees back that degree of privacy um, and not sharing their data with everyone. And it's not predicting to the employee. We're not looking at all of that and then Mm -hmm. saying, hey, we know you bought this book over here. You should also have all of these other things. Like, that's creepy. When you like mention something and suddenly it shows up in your social feed, you're like, "Mm, we're doing none of that because I have a visceral reaction to that. In terms of engaging with employers, are all employers aware of the importance of engaging with staff and ensuring that, firstly, that there's perks on offers, but also that they're being utilized? Or is there still an element of box ticking when it comes to this element of HR? You know, saying that, well, we make the effort and if the employee doesn't take it, then that's on them. Uh, maybe pre-pandemic. It's too hard to hire people. It's too hard to retain people. There is no, You have no choice as an HR leader if you have trouble either attracting or retaining and not focusing on this because 80% of your compensation, at least in the U.S., is your health insurance and your salary. It's the last 20% where perks live, and that's where companies compete because... I mean, realistically, tech company is a tech company is a tech company. Manufacturing is manufacturing is manufacturing. So to compete, you have to show that you're supporting your employees in a different way. HR leaders no longer have the ability to check a box or CFOs who control the budget. They can no longer say, oh, well, we offer all these things. We're glad nobody uses them. You can't do that if you actually want to retain people. Employees have the ability to dictate at this point in time. Yeah, I think it's super interesting looking at, um, you know, what you're offering because companies probably do spend ridiculous amounts of money. Insane amounts of money. 
and then nobody, like the majority is not utilizing it. That's exactly right. So it's bonkers. Throwing away cash. So I'll give you an example. A lot of companies will offer employees like a gift card mm-hmm. to, for whatever, happy birthday, here's a gift card, go use it how you want. Well, the company's paying an activation fee on that gift card. It's usually around $5. There's also the entire gift card industry is predicated on you not using it. That's how they make money. Then even if you were going to use it, there's always that last $7.27 that you can't find something with shipping and handling and whatever. So you're literally lighting on fire money that isn't being used by the company or the employee. Why? When an employee could use all of that compensation in a way that still aligns with their own personal needs, but also a company culture. And how difficult is it to implement a shift in the rewards or the perks based thing in, in, in the workspace. I don't want to kind of get anyone in trouble, but some of my friends have told me that HR initiatives that have been brought in to try and boost morale, sometimes right. it just feels like let's oh, sit around and sing Kumbaya. 100%. Like get to the point and tell right. me how I get what I want. Right. Well, and that's where, I mean, one, we manage the communication through the platform so mm-hmm. that it is a lot easier for HR, but this is really putting that control back in the employee's hands. So instead of being a top down, yes, we want everybody to feel happy and we are going to do that kumbaya thing it's saying hey employee we trust you you're an adult we want to support your wellness journey but we're not going to tell you what that means because you're an adult and you can figure this out for yourself also why like we're not your parent Mm -hmm. (laughs) like what are we even doing here Mm -hmm. like in some places it's called an allowance what is that that sounds very parental Mm -hmm. and so it's shifting that dynamic we have 97 percent account activation on our platform because employees are just like yeah thanks, this is exactly what I need and I get to do what I want. Is it a case of like pressing pause on everything that you're doing from a HR perspective and almost auditing it and seeing what works, what doesn't work and scraping a layer of stuff away? I mean, HR's already been doing that for the last two years. They know this. Like, they, they know that this stuff isn't used. You could get away with it a little bit when people were showing up to the office anyways. Mm-hmm. Now that it's so competitive for talent, that shift is already happening. We grew almost 500% as a company last year. We almost grew almost 400% the year before. HR is very well aware that this is a problem, and so they are actively changing up their approach and what they're doing. How beneficial is tech in terms of developing talent, retaining talent beyond just, you know, the the perks and the rewards side of things, but also ensuring that there is that element of uh, humanity and empathy and human connection, I suppose. Yeah, and it's something that we're constantly, I I don't think we have all the answers by any stretch, and I think the entire world is trying to figure this out right now. For us as a team, as we transitioned to being fully remote, it was about finding those, setting those times where people could connect in a way that did not have an agenda and was not about work talk. So that we could do, like, we'd do coffee chats a couple times a week, and maybe we play virtual games and do things like that, where it's like we're just getting together as humans. Uh, It's not you know it's not obligatory so people don't have to if they're feeling like they need to check out but it's creating space for those conversations in a way that um, if all we're doing is jumping on a meeting and hitting a checklist and keep going like you're going to feel very disconnected from your coworkers. you have to build in that humanity mm-hmm. and just your overall workflow some of that can be enabled by technology I mean if you're fully distributed you have to use like whether it's zoom or you know whatever the plat- video platform is because you can't physically see people otherwise Mm -hmm. so you have to do that Um, but leveraging things like slack are another way too where people can just have chats and put in gifts and share personality in a way that is a little bit different from okay we showed up we hit our agenda and then we go to the next meeting like Mm -hmm. that is very demoralizing for people
that was Amy Sperling of Compt. I would love to hear what you think about this issue. Uh, does it matter to you? Would you like a more personalised perk? And are perks enough to keep you in a job? Email techtalk at newstalk.com. When we come back here on Newstalk, I'll chat with Jim Kelleher, the CFO of Drift, about what makes Ireland an attractive place for US companies to set up shop. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you want to get in touch. Uh, I was in Boston last week as part of Ireland Gateway to Europe and I met with companies flying the Irish flag working to secure foreign direct investment into the country. And one of the people I met whilst there was Jim Kelleher, who is the CFO of Drift. But he's also been involved in many tech companies over the years. I sat down with him to find out why some businesses choose Ireland as their European base. But I first asked him how he got involved in Gateway to Europe. Uh, I was previously to this, I was a CFO of a company called LogMeIn. Um, uh, with LogMeIn, we set up our international headquarters in, in Dublin. We went from zero employees to probably like 300 employees on a, on a four-year period of time. But as part of that, I got associated with Robbie and the Gateway Group. Um, and and they helped us set up that international headquarters. How much has it benefited companies coming to Ireland and having that gateway and having that bridge? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a, a huge um, uh, factor in in us being able to quickly set up in Ireland, to understand the culture, which a lot of it comes from Boston here, and to have the ability to move people back and forth, right? And so the gateway organization allowed a lot of that to happen from a sense of we had people when we first set up our offices we we set up via offices that were associated with people in the gateway group mm-hmm. uh, matt mohan did our build out at um uh, at log when we went to bid the build out at, at log so we've used the gateway organization a lot at, at log in order to facilitate our business between uh, the the two companies can you just paint a picture of you know what factors you consider when you are thinking about of opening a base in another country and what makes Ireland attractive uh, yeah. as a base? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and we did that at LogMeIn, right? We, we looked back at, okay, where would be best to, to set up? So for us as a, as a U.S. company, to be honest, the Eng- English language is important. Um, that was important to us. Um, the workforce, I think, was the most important thing. And what is the capability uh, of the workforce? Um, we liked that other companies were already there so that we weren't trailblazing uh, a technology, um, you know, set up into an environment. Um, Fourth, we loved the direct flights from Boston to Dublin mm-hmm. so that we could uh, get there very, very quickly. And fifth, and almost as important as, as all of them, the workforce being the most important, but fifth was we, and, and, and all my companies, um, we believe it is important to so-called export the American culture into the companies that we set up. And so Dublin or Ireland is an opportunity for where you can easily move people into that environment. So I used to tell the story at Log Me In, we picked up, we moved over six or seven, I'll call them kids, they were in their, their late 20s from Boston to, uh, to Dublin. And they were all living in South Boston, and literally they, they, they picked up one day in South Boston, they set up in Dublin, you know, um, two days later. And 
I think if the currency was was the same, they would not know they were in you know America or Ireland, right? And so it became that familiar stuff that allowed us to put people back and forth, which was really important for us. Mm. We like to think that we're super important, and everybody knows the Irish. Everybody loves the Irish. In your experience and in you know the different realms that you've worked in. Do you get the impression that Ireland is on the map when it comes to particularly tech companies? We like to see ourselves as the Silicon Valley of Europe. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Silicon Valley is probably a big jump, but <laughs> but but it is definitely on the map. I would say, right, of places to set up uh, uh, in Europe, and I think it's in large part because of the presence of other tech companies there. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the workforce that has been created, you know, in part through the university systems, in part through that, that those other companies that have developed people, right? Mm-hmm. And so that I think is the main reason people um, people look at Ireland. You know, it was, I did a radio show um, with Bloomberg News um, a couple years ago um, when the, the issue was always around the tax rates, right? And I don't don't you go to Ireland only for the tax rates? Uh, look, it's beneficial, but companies do not go and set up a development center simply to save taxes, right? That is not the right reason to do it. You would not go into a tax environment in which you were going to pay 60 or 70% taxes, but you are not looking for the lowest cost tax environment to set up your companies because it's too critical to the setup of the company. Whether it's sales and support because you're using it as a catalyst to get into Europe, or whether it's development and you're extending your development organization there, they're too important to be, have the focus solely be tax. Mm. Uh, we're here and we were in Chicago earlier in the week this is the first time the Ireland Gateway to Europe uh, trip has happened in two years because obviously the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, now with the work anywhere culture and the work from home culture and the normalization of that, will companies still need a, a European base? Will companies still come to Ireland, do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it stops you from needing a European base, right? And so um, you still need to get on that time zone you still, to a certain extent, need to understand the European culture in in selling in that environment. So companies will still have a European base. Um, It certainly means that companies don't necessarily have to have a giant office in Dublin, that they could have, you know, an office in Dublin and then have people scattered throughout Ireland, Mm -hmm. or to a certain extent, either scattered in other spots in Europe that can work up through that corporation. But there is no question... um, COVID or remote work will not remove the fact that you need a European base in order to expand your business into Europe. Mm. We have some incredible uh, representatives of Ireland here today. Uh, What's your assessment of the mix of people that we have and the way that we're showcasing Ireland? Do you think that it is a good representation of, you know, what we are and what we offer? Yeah, I I do. And, And I think... It comes across in these meetings that that people are friendly, open, and want to get things done, right? Mm-hmm. And and that is really important when you set up environments. Um, I, I think it's it's very kind of anti-bureaucratic in setting up um, uh, organizations over there, and you get that sense of people here that 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 they want to just like get business, get things done, and get things done in the simplest way. And I think what, you know, the IDA has done and what the governments have done over there, become they've become very, very friendly to promote business in that environment. And the banking system is the same way. Um, and so I think all of that comes across in a meeting like this. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the space that we're in? Because I have just had a look around the building and it is a beautiful space that we have. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, what it's all about. Yeah, cool. So so we're, we're at Drift's headquarters here in in, in Boston, Drift is a company that has an AI-powered conversational platform. Um, 
We have roughly 60,000 square feet here, um, and um, pre-COVID, there were 250 and 300 uh, employees in this environment. And we always believed, like a lot of tech companies in the U.S. and Ireland, um, that an office presence was like important, and it was how we had the culture. And so, as you look around the space here, you see it's entirely open. There are no offices. I'm the CFO, I'm David Cancel, and Elias Torres are the two founders, CEO and CTO. There's no office. They would sit right out here in in uh, in these desks. Um, we did it in a fun way in which you see all sorts of graphics and stuff around there. And the idea was to create a place where people want to come into, want to have fun, want to collaborate, want to learn, want to develop, and want to get stuff done. And, and that's how we have developed this space. And I think you'll find it typical of other you know, tech companies in the Boston area that have done the same. But, but yeah, that was the whole meaning of it. Now, we're at an interesting point with this COVID situation. And that we as a company have gone to what we would call digital first, which means um, you don't have to come into the office um, and your first place of business will be to work from home. But we have converted our spaces to a certain extent to what we call conversation spaces now, in which people are encouraged to come in to do teamwork, to collaborate, to meet you know their colleagues, um, to meet with their managers, to get things done on a uh, team basis versus an individual work basis. So we think, Long term, somewhere, everybody talks about this hybrid environment, somewhere the offices will be in this hybrid environment, that people will have flexibility to work from where they want, and when they want to come into the office, there will be a facility in which that is easy for them to do, easy to get stuff done, and easy to work with other people. How have you found, you know, uh, maintaining company morale and company vision and company culture in that sort of digital-first uh, environment? Yeah, it's tougher. There's no question it's tougher. Um, we have been amazed at how quickly people have adopted to Zoom, though, and, and we always had two, two um, practices here. We had a Monday morning kickoff meeting. Where, um, uh, we called it Monday Metrics, in which uh, the, uh, the entire uh, department, would, uh, the entire company would go over to that area we just came from, and we would spend 15 minutes just updating people on, uh, on the company. At the end of the week, we had a so-called what we call a show and tell, in which the department shows something that they've done during the week and you know, educates other people. Um, we still have those practices, but we have shifted them to be virtual. And, and so um, it's become tougher, but I think we've adopted some of the things that we did into this virtual world, and we're trying to do events um, that will continue to like push the employee culture and develop that culture over time. As someone who's been in uh, this space for quite some time, when you look at the younger members of the workforce, you know, I gave the example earlier on, I started a news talk making tea and coffee on the weekends when I was 19, and 90% of what I know today, I've picked up from watching other people. Yeah. I was like a sponge. Yeah. For people entering the workforce for the first time, are they going to be massively disadvantaged by not having that experience, that ability to look around and see how you deal with a problem versus well, someone else? And, and I think the short answer to that is, is sure, it's going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. But the idea is we, are, again, are creating an environment where we have not said we're going straight work from home. We are creating those environments in which these kids um, can come in and can learn and can develop. I, I agree 100% that that is a very, very important way as you develop and to a certain extent as you um, 
develop your friendships and your colleagues and stuff like that. But we'll hopefully we'll have an environment in which we have the best of both worlds so that people can choose when they can do it. They know when I will be um, uh, in the office. We now have what we call Workday Wednesdays where people are showing up on a Wednesday. If it, Today is, is Friday, but mm-hmm. on Wednesday this week we had 50 or 60 employees, so roughly call it 33% of our workforce in Boston that was in the office because they knew other people were coming in and therefore they could collaborate and they could you know have some social interaction with people so I think we're gonna try to balance that uh, over time. That was Jim Kelleher CFO of Drift speaking to me at Drift's office in Boston. When we come back I'll talk to the Irish company looking to make corporate communications cool. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to the final part of Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, we've heard quite a bit this year already about the rise in subscription services. We have them for music, for TV, for movies and for cloud storage. But have you heard of corporate video production subscriptions? Well, that is what my next guest and his colleagues are doing. Shane Carney is the MD of Video as a Service and I met him in Boston as part of Ireland Gateway to Europe. And he started out by telling me a little bit more about their platform. I suppose it is similar to software as a service. So with your software as a service, you get a monthly subscription um, and and you, you'll get a particular amount of software for that monthly uh, fee. So we, we've kind of taken a similar approach to video. And with our service, you, you can subscribe, get a certain amount of video content that you can push out across your channels. And I suppose it's specifically tailored for companies that have constant video demand. So we know that brands have changed how they communicate with their customers, how they reach out. It's no longer just corporate statements in the Financial Times. They have to be dynamic. They have to be warm. They have to get their message out there. Why is it worth you know, outsourcing the video versus getting the marketing manager to stand there with an iPhone and uh, just get the CEO saying something to the camera? So I suppose you're, anytime you push anything out from your company in terms of marketing, you have to protect your brand. So if the quality of what you're putting out there, be it video or be it graphics or anything, is, isn't at the standard it should be, you can do damage to your brand. So it's important that you have a good, high quality standard of be it video, be it photographs, be it whatever it is uh, you're using for your marketing material because you're protecting your brand. And how does it work if I am a company and I want to engage the the services of video as a service, what do I get for my money and is it a monthly subscription like Netflix or is it on an ad hoc basis? Yeah, similar to a monthly subscription like Netflix. So depending on the amount of video production you want to do, you can subscribe to get X amount of days production per month. Um, And what happens is I suppose we have two unique uh, selling points in terms of the service when you compare it to the traditional video production um, houses. So in the first instance you'll get a guy off her team um, who is a, I suppose an all-encompassing producer so he can storyboard, he can conceptualise, he can edit film. Um, so you have that singular point of contact which makes the process much more efficient so you're, you're talking to the same person all the time um, and he understands what the concept is so he knows what to film 
because he knows what he's filming then that helps him with the editing so as we said it's a more efficient process um, and because there's less people involved we can deliver the service then at a better value for money uh, for the client and um, the second piece then as you said it's it's a subscription model so once you subscribe you'll get your guy and he'll he'll become I suppose essentially a part of your team he'll understand the company its culture target markets uh, target audience and I suppose importantly the personalities within the company as well so if you if you know the people who are comfortable on the camera who maybe aren't so comfortable etc that can save a lot of grief and hassle uh, for clients Um, yeah The, the notion of doing it on a monthly basis having a monthly subscription says to me that there's clearly the demand for this. People are obviously looking for that level of video output. What size companies are you engaging with? Because is this an expensive you know, investment that they'll have to have a massive outlay to, to set aside and put in this? Or is it something that SMEs can tap into as well? Well, certainly SMEs, um, from SMEs up to large-scale corporate clients are who we're talking to and dealing with and producing content for at the minute. Um, and we, 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 we deal with charities, we're dealing with government agencies, we're dealing with financial institutions, software institutions, uh, we have some logistics companies. So most people now have moved to video in terms of their communications with their audience um, so they all see the value in it and we deal with, so we deal with that broad spectrum of, uh, of clients and I assume that it's your team that brings all of the equipment all of the video yeah. software because those subscriptions even just to video software editing software can be crazy money so that's all looked after from your side all we're paying for is the video as a service suite yeah, so as well, our aim is to take the hassle out of video production. That's it, very simply. Um, and there's a lot of people are quite daunted by having to go and produce a video. So our job is just to take all the hassle out and make life easy for the client. Um, so as you say, we provide everything from start to finish. And all they have to do is talk to us, I suppose subscribe, and uh, we'll liaise with them in terms of content. We'll keep them engaged each step of the way to make sure they're happy with um, what's being produced. And they'll get the final sign off then on whatever the video is. In terms of your own background and the background of the team, you must have a good understanding of what works in video. Because I remember a few years ago, people were saying, oh, I'm going to do a viral tweet, not understanding that's not, that's not how it works. You must have a good appreciation, a good understanding of the medium. Yeah, I, I suppose from uh, past experiences, life experiences, um, I've seen the power of video firsthand. Um, I suppose two, two in particular. One, I had a cardiac arrest back in 2010. Um, and fortunately I, I survived it I suppose but um, there was CCTV footage of the event and when I was in hospital I, I, I actually lost my short term memory but when I came around um, they explained to me what happened and I said oh is that what happened to Cormac McAnallen and they said yeah that's exactly what happened to Cormac McAnallen and they said the defibrillator in the club saved you and I remembered that Cormac McAnallen's family had undertaken a lot of uh, awareness around defibrillators and that was why the defibrillator was in our club so I was made aware then of the CCTV footage and I wanted to pay it forward what the McAnallans had I suppose done for me um, so we we made a reconstruction 
of the event and I suppose embedded the CCTV footage into the reconstruction. Um, at the time, we're going back to 2010, YouTube was probably the main platform for video. We got 100,000 hits and then subsequently word came back to us um, that there was 10 or more lives saved because clubs around the country had purchased defibrillators, had checked the batteries in the defibrillators, having seen the video and having heard the story. Um, and I suppose there was more lives saved um, and it was all as a direct consequence of being able to package the message, put it together in a story that resonated with an audience. There's a level, there's a huge level of authenticity though with that story, the fact that it was personal to you, the fact that it, it had such a powerful message. Is that something that you try and bring through when you are dealing with corporate productions? Because it can be quite different depending on what the yeah, message yeah. is that they're trying to get out there. Yeah. How do you ensure and encapsulate that sense of authenticity each time? So, it, as we said, it like when when our point of contact from our, our company, our, our all-encompassing producer, if you like, um, goes out and meets the clients, they, they try to get a sense of the personality of the company and the people that within the company and then capture that personality and and like for example you might have a software company and software can be just something on a screen and you're trying to explain it and, and can be a little bit boring but if you can bring the personality of the company to the video to help explain the the software i think it resonates more with the, the software company's clients and they say, oh, they seem like cool guys, seems like a cool environment. So you're trying to capture that essence and personality of the company uh, each time. And, and every company is different because every company has a different set of workers. So um, you're trying to capture that and I suppose make it quite cinematic and creative um, that, it's not that it doesn't look too corporate um, because most people relate to that kind of personal touch a bit more. Another important aspect of this as well is the distribution because different kinds of videos work well on different types of platforms. Yeah. So you spoke about your um, the CCTV and the reconstruction doing well on YouTube because that was what's there at the time but now we have so many platforms. Do you cater for different platforms? Are videos cut for different platforms and distributed in different ways? Um, Absolutely, we like we'll package the videos in whatever formats um, the client wants them, so they can push them out across the different platforms. So obviously, YouTube and Vimeo are going to be different to Instagram and um, and Facebook and Twitter, etc., LinkedIn. Um, so what's important is like, if you're putting text on the video or subtitles that it's not spilling out over the edge of the screen so that expertise is on our team and, and we use that to make sure that everything is packaged nightly, nicely um, and the, the client then can push it out and it looks really professional we said earlier that it's protecting their brand because it's it's real slick and, and uh, nicely packaged um, what brings you to Boston as part of the Gateway to Europe uh, delegation that's here? So um, we we engaged with Sigmar who are involved in running the trip um, and we helped them capture the Talent Summit event uh, in the convention centre in Dublin um, and they seen the power of video and they thought it would be a useful exercise to introduce us to the other people on the trip. There's a lot of different clients here across a range of industries um, and every, they all need video. Um, so uh, Aidy and his team were happy to introduce us to these, 
these people and we can all help each other because we're all interconnected and dependent I suppose upon each other and equally if there is foreign direct investments coming from stateside into the country you know and there is a lot of new firms uh, open up every every week uh, every second day maybe you know and they need to touch base with people locally to source services and suppliers so we're happy to help these guys. That was Shane Carney, MD of Video as a Service, speaking to me as part of the Ireland Gateway to Europe delegation in Boston last week. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. And as ever, if you have tech questions, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com at any stage. John Fardy's up next here on Newstalk from me, Jess Kelly. Take care.